You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today I'm going to try to break down hereditary based anemias and that's going to be sickle cell anemia and hemophilia. These are quite somewhat complicated conditions. I'm just going to try to give you the nitty gritty basics of what you need to know in understanding what's occurring and what these patients who have these sorts of disease processes will look like. So I'm going to start first with sickle cell anemia which is a genetically carried trait and or disease process that is resultant of the parents carrying and passing with a sickle cell trait onto their offspring. And what this is, is if you think about sickle cell, the hemoglobin, we've got um, four points of hemoglobin in a red blood cell. Well, part of the hemoglobin A is either partly or completely replaced by an abnormal sickle hemoglobin S. Why that matters, it's just for those that are curious, you don't really need to boil down to that point. But if you understand the pathology behind it, it makes understanding the process of sickle cell anemia significantly easier because sickle cell anemia is abnormal hemoglobin on the red blood cell. And to wrap your brain around it, right, the red blood cells that people who have sickle cell disease They are round and shaped normally, except for when they're stressed out. And then that hemoglobin S causes it to sickle and look like not a nice round red blood cell, but kind of a partial C. And those then cause vasoocclusive crises, which is why sickle cell anemia is associated with so much pain. Now, these are in individuals who have the sickle cell disease, so they've got the two recessive traits, and they're not just a carrier. That's very different. Um, the population by which we see this predominantly in are African-Americans. So about one in 12 individuals who are of African-American descent will carry the sickle cell trait, not necessarily disease process. And the reasoning behind that was because it was found that um, individuals that carry the sickle cell trait were protected against um, malaria. So in geographical regions where malaria is endemic, there is a higher prevalence of individuals carrying the sickle cell trait. Um, But because higher prevalence of people carrying the sickle cell trait, if you put two individuals together that both carry the trait and you draw out a Punnett square, you have a 25% chance that your offspring will have the two recessive genes um, or traits and will then carry the sickle cell disease process. I think in order to appropriately describe this, we also need to keep in mind that the normal lifespan of a red blood cell is typically 120 days. Well, individuals who have the sickle cell disease who actually carry the disease process and not just the trait, because it's a recessive trait, you have to have two in order to have the full-blown disease. What happens is basically their cells might be round and normal, but then when they are stressed out, they can enter into a sickle cell crisis. And those red blood cells that have the hemoglobin S, the sickled hemoglobin, will convert the cell from its nice round shape into the sickled shape. And it can do this back and forth, back and forth. So when we catch patients early on who have a sickle cell crisis going on and we can reverse what the original cause was, those sickled cells can reverse under those conditions when there's adequate oxygenation and hydration. We'll get into that after a little bit. But if those cells are repeatedly sickling and then reverting back to its nice round shape and then sickling again, eventually they will 
after repeated cycles of becoming sickled in shape, they will become permanently sickled, which causes these vasoocclusive crises and anemia. Because the sickled cells cannot adequately carry oxygen, and it just doesn't do its job properly, which is why they become anemic because the cells are not doing its job. Now, the way that we test for sickle cell disease and whether or not someone has it or is a carrier is we will use this in screening purposes. We use this test called sickle dex, which is a sickle tupidity test. And it's frequently used just because it's a finger stick and it yields really high accurate results in about three minutes time. But the caveat with this is that it's just testing for the sickled hemoglobin S. So if it comes back positive, an additional blood test actually has to be sent off to confirm whether or not the person is just a carrier of the trait or if they actually have the full-blown disease process. Now, let's say that we're taking care of someone who actually has sickle cell disease. Um, Here are some factors that are have the potential to precipitate this person to going into a sickle cell crisis, which is the big problem because it's a vaso-occlusive crisis and it's basically all of these clots or lack of blood flow forming all over the body, which affects all the organs. So factors that we need to take into consideration is if there's been some sort of significant blood loss like surgery, because the blood loss leads to less oxygen transportation and you will find that a hypoxic state or lack of oxygen is a precipitator to triggering the cells to go from the round shape to the sickled shape. Now, if they've had some sort of infection or illness, that can also precipitate it because the spleen is having to, um, has the problems with the sickled cells trying to filter them out. And because those sickled cells then stick together, blood flow can be diminished to the spleen and cause a sickle cell crisis. Now, if people are climbing or flying in high altitudes, again, that high altitude increases the body's demand for oxygen and high altitudes just don't have the same percentage of oxygen as like sea level environments do and so because of that increase in oxygen demand that the body experiences at high altitudes um, that can precipitate it now um, keeping stress like either mental or physical stress can also alter the way that the body uses oxygen and, and can precipitate a sickle cell crisis in addition to really low fluid intake. So dehydration decreases the volume, stresses the body out and can trigger it as well as temperature changes. So elevated temperature increases the body's demand for oxygen. And similarly, in really cold situations, extreme temperature shifts will increase oxygen demand from the tissues. And so these people that have sickle cell disease, like they should not be doing a polar plunge jump. They should not be going into the ocean because those extreme shifts in temperature where the cells then require an increase in oxygen consumption can stimulate and trigger a sickle cell crisis from starting. And it's not always possible to know what sets off a crisis, but the primary triggers, right, include dehydration, temperature shifts, infection, stress, and the big one is really low oxygen intake. For example, the uh, most memorable patient I took care of in the emergency room who had a sickle cell crisis was an African-American truck driver who was traveling over some of the mountainous passes in the United States. So he had a stressful job. He was not drinking enough fluids because then he'd have to pull over at a rest stop or, you know, whatever the rationale was. And he was changing altitudes, often going up and over mountainous passes, 
but mountains are also really cold. So then there was also this temperature shift. So that I took care of an individual truck driver came down a mountainous pass and it triggered a sickle cell crisis. And we had to admit him for pain control and to try to reverse the sickle cell crisis so that we didn't cause further damage. So these patients that have sickle cell disease that end up in a sickle cell crisis, the way that they present, this is the P in the pie, right, <clears throat> is they're going to have tissue ischemia. They'll have infarction at the cellular level. They're going to have a lot of pain and that will be their primary symptom. They're going to have tenderness and swelling, especially if it's sickled in a joint, for example. They might have a fever. They'll become tachypnic and tachycardic because they're trying to compensate, A, for the lack of hypoxic cells, right? They're trying to get more oxygen circulating um, and they're trying to accommodate with the pain. They might be nauseated and they might have vomiting. You could potentially even see jaundice because as those red cells break down, um, you know, it's potential is that the liver may not be able to properly break it down and get rid of those damaged red blood cells. Shock is also possible in these patients due to that oxygen depletion and that reduced circulating uh, fluid volume. And these sickle cell crises happen suddenly and they all happen suddenly and then they can last for days or weeks. And what we can see often is that infection is a frequent complication of this. Again, because every system is affected. So really like the goal, like our intervention for people who have sickle cell crisis is to alleviate the symptoms from that complication of the disease. And by doing that, we really want to minimize end organ damage. So you, we promptly treat this um, to prevent the serious sequelae from occurring. And so it's hydration, 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 oxygen, get them the oxygen, get them an IV, get them IV hydration. Um, they need rest and pain management. We have to address these key things uh, because those are precipitators of it. So when people are dehydrated, right? So we need to rehydrate them when they become hypoxic. So we need to give them oxygen and replace electrolytes if they're also, you know, needing that because they haven't been adequately hydrating. Give them the pain medication because this is an incredibly painful process. Um, and then give them antibiotics if we think that there's an infection brewing and we really just want to monitor for signs of complications like increasing anemia, decreased perfusion, and, and that shock that's going to be a big one. And ultimately, the way that we evaluate whether or not what we've done in our intervention, this is the E of the pie, whether or not it's worked, is if they've got good pain control, if they're hydrated adequately, if they're no longer hypoxic, uh, it's going to take them a hot minute to reestablish red blood cell supply, especially if some of their red blood cells became permanently sickled from too many sickling occurrences. So these are considerations that we need to take into consideration. In terms of education, we really want to educate these patients that they need to stay appropriately hydrated and then avoid things that could potentially lead to a hypoxic state like extreme changes in elevation suddenly or strenuous exercise, um, even emotional stress and those big temperature shifts, um, even from high temperature to low temperature or from low temperature to high temperature, anything that would increase the metabolic and activity and the oxygen demand of the cells, we want to try to educate them how to avoid that so that we don't precipitate a potential sickle cell crisis from occurring. 
All right, now let's talk about hemophilia. And hemophilia is a bleeding disorder that results from a deficiency of specific coagulation proteins. And the most common types are factor 8 deficiency, which is hemophilia A, and factor 9 deficiency, which is hemophilia B. And it's an X-linked recessive disorder, and the cause of the deficiency is in a clotting factor in a clotting factor, not platelets. It's not a platelet problem. It's a clotting factor problem. And so individuals who have hemophilia, whether it's hemophilia A or hemophilia B, the bleeding tendencies are going to range from mild to severe. And so it's really going to depend. Um, What we can do is we can do lab work and what we would see is an elevation in their uh, coagulation studies like you know, the APTT, the activated partial thromboplastin time. And um, we can also then see a decrease in the factor that they're deficient in, whether that's, you know, eight or nine, for example. Platelet count and PT and INR will not be affected because this is not a platelet problem. This is a factor problem. So individuals that have hemophilia, some of the signs and symptoms that they're likely to experience are going to be excessive bleeding and bruising everywhere. So if they knock their hand on something or their their knee on something, they don't have the factor in which to add it appropriately clot clot off the internal bleeding or the micro bleeding in that vasculature. And so depending on where they hit their arm, they if it's on a joint, they're going to have joint pain and they'll have swelling and it'll be warm to the touch and bruising, and they have the potential to develop hemiarthrosis, which is just a really fancy way of saying that they're bleeding into the joint. And because they might bleed into the joint, they'll then also subsequently have decreased range of motion. Most often, um, we will start to see these signs and symptoms of potential hemophilia. If it wasn't screened for, we'll start to see it in um, children around the age of six months. And what that will kind of look like is they'll have bleeding. So, you know, they might get a bloody nose, things like that. Or just really honestly, any abnormal bleeding in response to some sort of trauma or surgery. Uh, We can even find this in children sometimes after, um, you know, especially males born at birth um, have had a circumcision. They'll have a really hard time with not bleeding after that. And so this is a childhood illness that we often detect in childhood because kids like to tumble and fall. And as a result, that's where we start to see this excessive bleeding. They bruise really easily. They'll bleed into joints. And so we, our goal is really designed at managing that. And so in terms of the interventions that we do with these children, um, or even adults that have hemophilia, but we just see it, we catch it in childhood. Um, the big thing that we're going to do is <laughs> the number, the main treatment is factor replacement. So you have to give them back. If they fall and hit their head, they're not going to have the factor to stop the bleeding. So the main course of treatment is to give them the concentrate of the clotting factor that they're deficient in, whether that's eight or nine, whatever they're deficient in, we need to give it to them. And then depending on where the Uh, concern for bleeding is. So for example, if a child has been running out on the playground and has taken a tumble and knocked their knee, we would not only give them the factor replacement, but then we would also encourage the old mantra of rice, which I think at a time was really going out of 
uh, style, but RICE, R-I-C-E, is rest, ice compression, and elevation to help with the, you know, vasoconstriction and de- decreasing, I guess, the potential for further bleeding. We can also give desmopressin, which is abbreviated as DDA. VP. And this is a man-made hormone that's used to treat people who have mild hemophilia A. So it's only given with hemophilia A. And basically what it does is it stimulates the release of stored factor 8 and von Willenbrand factor to increase the levels of those proteins in the blood. It's usually given by injection or as a nasal spray um, because the effect of this medication wears off if it's used too often. The medication's only given in very specific certain situations. For example, like right before dental work or before playing certain sports to prevent or just reduce bleeding in general. And then in terms of other interventions, other than just replacing the factor that they're deficient in or giving that desmopressin, we're going to do things like monitoring for joint pain. And if it was their knee that they hit, immobilize that area so that there's not continued articulation of vessels that have been damaged, which would increase bleeding to that area. And then you're going to want to assess, you know, neurostatus. If you're worried about some sort of head bleed, look at their urine to make sure that there's no blood in the urine. Um, and then really just teach the child and parents about signs of internal bleeding and the parents need to be taught on how to control bleeding and what to do if something happens because ultimately like this is a deficiency that they'll have for the rest of their life so they need to be able to understand which factor they need in order to stop the bleeding but then ultimately if we can just prevent bleeding from beginning I understand that children run around and that's probably damn near impossible to ask of them. However, prevention is best. We also want to make sure that they understand that these patients who have hemophilia should not be getting NSAIDs or aspirin um, because they don't need additional, you know, bleeding potential risk on top of already what they've got going on from a genetic standpoint. And then if they're in the hospital, we want to do things like avoid needle injections or IM medications because they're just going to ooze out of that site where we've created trauma or injury from the needle. And we want to, with these children, engage them in physical therapy to really maintain range of motion. So when they get that bleeding into the joint, it can reduce range of motion over the long term if it's just if it's not maintained and so we want to work with these children even into adulthood if they have issues with that they need to do physical therapy in order to maintain it and we encourage them to not play any contact sports so no American football because that would be catastrophic in some circumstances for people who have hemophilia And maybe there are some people out there with hemophilia that do play American football and they play contact sports and they do just fine with it. This is going to be on a case-by-case individual basis. So that is what I know about hemophilia. Both sickle cell disease and hemophilia are kind of very complicated uh, anemias that are genetic and hereditary based. Uh, Hopefully that this made it more clear. If it didn't, you know, go back to your resources Otherwise, go forth and keep on learning.